0: words and phrases for instance he's used the word vanity 39 times in this book he's used the phrase under the sun 29 times now he uses those words those phrases to drive home the point that life without God that is life under the sun is meaningless but life with God life over the sun that means living life from a heavenly perspective folks is priceless Now here in chapter 12, he brings the book to the ultimate climax, to the conclusion, with these simple yet powerful words. Look at verse 13. He says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Then verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So there you have it, folks. There is the icing on the proverbial cake. There is what's being said. When all the smoke clears, okay, when everything is completed, and as the title of the message says this morning, when it's all said and done, that's what it boils down to. Fear God and keep His commandments. Now folks, there are two things that I want to talk to you about this morning. Number one, I want to talk to you about the duty of man. And then number 2, I want to talk to you folks about the destiny that every man has. So let's start with the first one, the duty that every man should follow. P.T. Forsyth, the renowned Scottish theologian, he said the first duty of the soul is not to find freedom, but to find its master. Now, I believe that's what Solomon is saying here in this last entry in his journal. He's reminding us that every man, every woman, every child, boy and girl, is accountable and responsible for following the duty that God has laid out for them to follow. And there are three things I want to call your attention to. Number one, this duty of life, it begins by living a humble life before God. Now the book of Ecclesiastes, it ends the same way the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote, uh, many of the Proverbs, the same way it begins, admonishing us to fear God. Now that's a common theme throughout Solomon's writings. Five times in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says we're to fear God. In other words, it's almost like that Solomon, (coughs) he had learned the hard way, that the only way to be exalted is to be humbled. He had learned the only way to live life without fearing life is to live life by fearing God. Another preacher from the 17th century, an English preacher, William Gurnall, he said, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. I believe that's true. Oswald Chambers, many of you know who that is. He put it this way. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Now, I've preached about the fear of God before. And I do realize when you talk about fearing God, the first image that comes to most people's mind is a picture of running and hiding somewhere in a closet or shaking uh, in fear or terror of God. But folks, that's not what it means to fear God. We fear God in faith. Now let me explain this to you. When we accept and acknowledge the person of God in faith, we then develop a holy fear for Him. A holy reverence for Him. Let me share with you an excerpt from a book written by a man by the name of Ray Steadman. The book's entitled, Is This All There Is to Life? And what he does, he uses an acrostic to define fear of God. And the letter F, He says that stands for faith. He says you cannot come to God unless you know who He is. So fear begins in the faith that God truly exists. The second letter, E, he said that stands for experience. It speaks of an experience of the grace of God, of having had that experience. He goes on to say you can never properly fear God until you've learned for yourself what kind of God He is. And He says He is a God of holiness, righteousness, but also of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And He said when you have stood before Him and felt your guilt and know that you should be condemned, then you have heard Him say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. He said then you'll be able to properly fear God. Now the next letter The letter A, he said, that stands for all. For the majesty, the splendor, and the glory of God. And he adds, we come to a place where we stand before Him in all because of who He is. We realize He is God. And then the next letter is the letter R. He said, that stands for resolve. The person who fears will resolve to look to and live by the Word of God as the final authority in their life. In other words, folks, the person who fears God will have enough respect, love, and reverence for God that they will do what God commands them to do. Now secondly, I believe you could say that a life humble before God leads us to a life holy to God. When I say holy, I mean H-O-L-Y. Look at verse 13. It seems like it's an automatic byproduct of fearing God that we would keep His commandments. In other words, Solomon, what he does, he ties these two admonitions together, these two counsels together. He says the one who fears God will automatically keep God's commandments. The life that's humble before God will lead to a life that is holy to God. So let me say this, folks. When we truly believe that God means what He says, we will do what He has told us to do. If you don't believe God exists, or you don't believe what God says, then you will not do what God has told you to do. You know, over the past several years, there's been much debate over Bible translation preference. You know, there are people who say, well, it's King James Version. Others say, no, NIV or uh, English Standard or... uh, you know, uh, American Standard or NASB or whatever it may be. Some people like the Living Translation. The question isn't really which version of the Bible you read, but which version of the Bible you prefer. Let me explain something to you. Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was a longtime time professor of, of biblical exposition and hermeneutics at Dallas Seminary, which hermeneutics is just the theory and methodology of interpretation of biblical text, this man had 50 years of intense study of the original writings of Scripture. And he had this to say. He said, I believe that most people, we actually prefer the reversed standard version." And this is what he says. When we read God's Word and recognize a call for change, we often choose to do the reverse and go against God's clear call and God's call for change. And then he was the one who originally said this. The only part of the Bible you truly believe is the part that you obey. Let me illustrate the point I'm making like this. Folks, in our country, each year, we spend billions and billions of dollars on medicine. How many of you take prescriptions each month? We probably spend thousands and thousands just in this church on prescriptions every month. Here's the point I'm making. Even though we spend billions, whether it be for prescriptions or doctor appointments or surgery or or hospital stays or whatever it may be, although we spend more money in America than any other country in the world, folks, over half of all patients refuse or fail to follow the doctor's instructions. That doesn't make any sense, does it? I'm speaking for myself here at this point. Because if I was, I wouldn't be preaching this morning if I was following doctor's instructions. But as tragic, folks, as that sounds, the same tragedy takes place in the spiritual realm concerning the Word of God. Let me explain it to you. The diagnosis has been given to all of us. And God's Word says we are sin sick and we cannot help ourselves. Now the prescription has been written and all we have to do is follow the prescription. But we fail to do so. See, we fail to follow or we refuse to follow the great physician's instructions. Amen? And here's the irony of it. We often blame God for our plight or our circumstances in life. Folks, God has given us in His Word everything we ever need if we'll just follow it. But here's our problem. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't want to do what we know that we ought to do. Now let me tell you something. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. It reminds me of a little boy I heard about. Was having lunch with his friend at school. They opened their lunch sacks, that little boy took out his sandwich. He opened it up and he said, oh no, peanut butter sandwich, I hate peanut butter sandwiches. The next day they met, they was having lunch, he opened his lunch, sure enough, he said, not again, peanut butter sandwich, I hate peanut butter sandwiches. The third day they met, little boy opened his lunch and he just dropped his head and shook it. Friend said, what's the matter? Little boy said, I got peanut butter sandwich again. His friend said, well, why don't you tell your mom to quit making those nasty things? That little boy, very indignant, he said, don't you dare talk about my mom. I made these sandwiches myself. (laughs) Now, folks, that's us. We will not follow God's instructions. And then when everything falls apart and goes awry, we want to blame God for it. That is not God's fault. That's our fault. <clears throat> the bottom line is the man who fears God will keep God's commandments. So listen to me. A life humble before God, folks, will be a life holy to God and it will lead to a life that's honored by God. Look at the last part of verse 13. It says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Look at that word, Duty. Now if you got the King James that says duty, the ESV I think uses the word duty. Some other translations use another word, but whatever word they use, it's better translated as wholeness or completeness. So let me explain. What it does, it suggests a life of, of completeness, of uh, fulfillment and contentment in contrast to a life that's broken, fragmented, and fallen apart. So here's what Solomon is saying. If we desire to have a life honored by God, then it all boils down to this. It's simple. Fear God. Keep His commandments. And if you do that, you'll discover the secret of being a whole person. Being complete in your life. A few years back, (coughs) at a meeting of the American uh, Psychological Association, a bunch of psychiatrists got together. In Chicago, and a psychologist at Union College, and then a grad student at the Columbia University, they presented their findings. They had done research for a year. And I thought, this is amazing things people do research on. But it made sense after I heard it. For a year, they had researched the 11 major symphony orchestras around the country. And they had spoke to each person in the sections which that person played in. And this is what they found out. The percussionists, they were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, hard of hearing, but fun loving. The string players, those that play the fiddle, I don't guess called the fiddle, violin, or whatever those are, uh, they were, they were thought, uh, thought to be arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose for the adjective, uh, primary adjective, to describe, describe the bass players. They said, they're loud. They're loud. And here, the woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem. They were described as quiet, meticulous, though a bit egotistical. Now those findings are interesting. You say, what's so interesting about a preacher? Well, let me ask you. With such widely different personalities and perceptions, how does an orchestra come together and play such beautiful music? I mean, how does that happen? Folks, it's simple. Regardless of how those musicians view each other, what they do is subordinate their feelings, their biases to the leadership of the conductor. And when they do that under his guidance, they can play beautiful music together. It harmonizes. Everything's in harmony and works. So listen to what Solomon is saying. When we follow our master conductor, our life will resonate with beautiful music. When we follow the conductor's instructions, our life will have beautiful music in it. (laughs) One of my favorite old-time Baptist preachers, he was a contemporary to D.L. Moody, a man by the name of F.B. Meyer. He said this, We must obey with reverent care the one great law of love which includes all the rest. Now the law of love he's talking about is loving God first and loving God most and loving God best. He says when we do that, we shall put ourselves in the way of enjoying a continuance of that favor which God has promised. He's saying you want God's favor on your life? Then make sure you love and honor God first and foremost. Fear God and keep His commandments. You know, I remember the story back in 1866. D.L. Moody was preaching a series of revival meetings in the state of Massachusetts. And with him leading music was a man by the name of Daniel Townsend. Now, Mr. Townsend, he was the the music leader for the Moody Bible Institute. And during one of those revival meetings, a young man stood up to give a testimony. And this young man hadn't been a Christian very long. But he stood up and he said, I don't understand everything about the Christian life. He said, but I do know this. I may not be sure of everything, but I'm sure of this. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to obey Him. Well, Towner was so touched by those words that he jotted them down on a piece of paper. A few days later, he sent that note and the story to a preacher by the name of J. H. Sammis. Now, he was a Presbyterian minister and also a teacher at Moody Bible Institute. Now, Reverend Samus, he took that one line. I know I will trust and I will obey. And he expanded it, folks, and he wrote that song that we love to sing. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory it sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Fear God, and keep His commandments. Let me ask you something, friend. Is God speaking to your heart today? Is God leading you to do something with your life? Well, will you hear Him? Better than that, instead of just hearing Him, are you willing to heed what He's calling you to do? You know what we need to do? We need to follow the instructions that Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave to the servants at the wedding in Cana. When Jesus turned the water to wine, Remember what she told the servants? She spoke to them and she pointed to Jesus and said, whatever He says, that's what you do. That's the attitude, folks, that we are to have. We must see ourselves, folks, the way God sees us. That will cause us to live humble before God. We must do whatever God says and live holy to God and then we can enjoy a life of holiness and completeness, a life that's honored by God. That is the duty of every person. Now I want to share with you real quickly the destiny that every man, every person shall face. C.H. Spurgeon, the great preacher said, the eternity of punishment Is a thought which crushes the heart. The Lord God is slow to anger, but when He is aroused to it, He will put forth all His omnipotence power, omnipotence of power to crush His enemies. There was a poll that was conducted by the Times a few years back, and they said that almost six out of ten Americans believe that we'll all be called before God on the day of judgment to answer for our sins. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Almost six out of ten, you say, that sounds pretty good. That is nothing to the odds that Solomon gives here. Let me explain it to you. Solomon speaks of a destiny that every man, every person is going to face. And I see it described in our text, number one, as an awaiting day of judgment. Look at verse 14. It says, God shall bring every work into judgment. Not God might or God could but God shall, God will bring every work into judgment. In other words, Solomon's not speaking in terms of possibility, friend. He's speaking in terms of certainty. He's not saying this day might happen. He's saying this day will happen. It's going to come. The day that awaits every man, every woman, every boy and girl. Understand this is judgment day in God's eternal courtroom. The date's been set on the court docket since the beginning of, Of time since the world was founded. All of the defendants are going to be present. All of the evidence is going to be submitted. And the judge will pronounce his final sentence, and there'll be no appeal after that sentence is passed. You know, a lot's been said in the news lately concerning the presidential, our president's appointment or nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, everybody's hollering, everybody's fighting and arguing about it, but it happens all the time. I think that most everybody here would agree with me. The fact is, folks, we do need quality judges in our courts. We need quality judges. But we need judges who will not rule from the bench, but who will interpret and enforce the laws as they are written. Not change them, but do the job that they're supposed to do. And you know, our judicial system, here in the United States, it's made up of a variety of courts. we got all kinds of courts. There's divorce court, criminal court, civil court, uh, appellate court, state supreme court, United States Supreme Court, you know, there's even a world court. And each one of these courts, they deal with a distinctive docket of cases. And I say that because I want to remind you, the court in heaven operates according to a totally different standard than our courts operate to. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will be the judge. And He's the final judge. There'll be no jury. There'll be no attorneys present. Jesus will be the judge, jury, and executioner. And understand, His judgment will be final. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be bought. He cannot be intimidated and He cannot be discredited by the Democrats or the Republicans. Jesus is one judge that will not be swayed regardless. Every person, every person who has ever been born will stand before Him at their respective day of judgment. He said, what do you mean respected? Well, let me explain. Every saint will face Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ. Every sinner will face Jesus at the great white throne judgment. But rest assured, folks, everybody going to face Him one day. It's said that just before he died, legendary actor W.C. Fields, now you older folks probably know who W.C. Fields was. Some of the younger folks may not. Now, he was not a Christian. But while he was in his hospital room, a friend came to see him. And he was surprised to see W.C. Fields thumbing through the Bible. He said, W.C., what are you doing? And W.C. Fields with a smile said, I'm just looking for loopholes, buddy. Looking for loopholes. Well, let me tell you something, friend. There are no loopholes regarding the awaiting day of judgment. No loopholes. Not only is it an awaiting day, but folks, I think it's also an alarming day of judgment. You say, why do you say that? Look at verse 14 again. We're told God shall bring every work into judgment. Every work. Now listen to me. To me, that's an alarming thought to think God is going to pull out all the evidence pertaining to our last work. God said there's nothing going to escape. I'm going to recall all of it. Now I know there are people who have argued this point here. They want to debate and speculate about what judgment that Solomon is speaking about. What is he talking about here? Well, let's just narrow it down. Number one, folks, we can conclude he's not referring to the judgment of the nations. Because judgment of nations has to do with the judgment of the Gentile nations, how they have treated or mistreated the nation of Israel. So there only leaves two other possibilities. The judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. Now personally, I believe here is in our text, it's making reference to the judgment seat of Christ. You say, why do you say that? Because he makes a point to mention that God will judge every work. Now in other words, folks, the basis of the judgment seat of Christ is not sin because Jesus has already taken the judgment of our sin as believers at Calvary. But at the judgment seat of Christ, it deals with a believer's service. The life we live for the Lord. Every work that we have done, whether good or evil, is going to be exposed. Let me read to you the way Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning verse 13 said, every man's work should be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Verse 14, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so, as by fire. So listen to me, you're a believer, You're a Christian, I want you to listen to me. The fiery eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to try our lives. Try our works that we have done. If our works withstand the fire of judgment, we're going to receive a reward. If they are consumed by that fire of judgment, we will not receive a reward. We'll be saved, Paul says, yet as by fire. In other words, we'll get to heaven simply because of the grace of God. But he's talking about a person who will not lose their salvation, but they're going to lose the reward. You see, this is a person who will move into heaven, but they're going to look back on a life that failed to count for Christ. Dr. Harry Ironside, he said, it's not how much we have done that's going to count, but it's the quality of what we have done that's going to matter. What we did, what we didn't do, what we could have done, what we should have done, will all be brought into question. It's an awaiting day. It's an alarming day. but I want to tell you, finally, it's also a day of perfect, complete justice. Somebody once asked the great statesman, Daniel Webster, say, "What's your greatest fear?" This is what he said. My greatest fear is of my accountability to Almighty God. Alan Redpath, the great British evangelist, he spoke of disjudgment and he said, certainly when the truth of judgment begins to burn in a man's conscience, there's not a day that he lives when it is not related to that day of judgment. The day of judgment is a waiting day. It's an alarming day because God's going to bring every work into judgment. But notice verse 14 again. I say it's a perfect, complete judgment because notice He says every secret thing, whether it be good, whether it be evil. Every secret thing. I want you to think about that. Whatever we've tried to cover, God's going to uncover. Whatever we've tried to excuse, God is going to expose. Whatever we've tried to reason away in our sinful heart, God is going to reveal. Whatever we've tried to keep secret, God's going to make public every hidden thing will be revealed. That means every secret, profane thing, every deed, every thought, every idle word will be brought into light. You know, D.L. Moody once said this. He said, if a a man could ever invent a camera that would take a picture of the human heart, he was talking about the human soul. He said, if a man could ever invent a camera, They would take a picture of the human heart. He said, that photographer would starve to death because ain't nobody wants that picture exposed. Every hidden thing. You know, those things that happen in your life you thought nobody knew about, God knew about them. Those things you thought nobody ever heard this, God heard it. Every secret thing. Solomon says one day it will all be exposed. That's why we're admonished to live a humble life, a holy life, and thereby an honored life before God. In the book, World of Flame, there's a story told of then the president, uh, uh, President Eisenhower. A trip that he made during his second term of office. It came to the president's attention that there was a little six-year-old boy by the name of Paul Haley. And his dream, he was dying of an incurable cancer. They couldn't operate on him. They couldn't do anything for him. This little six-year-old boy's dream was to meet the president of the United States. Well, it came to Eisenhower's attention. So he told his aide, he said, get the the boys together. He said, tomorrow morning, I want to go see this young man. So they got all the secret service and aides, everybody together, all the entourage. And that Saturday morning, they loaded up the presidential limo and, you know, all the guards and everything else with him. And they took off and drove several hours to this little boy's home. Now, nobody knew the President was coming. And here they come pulling down this little residential neighborhood, that huge black limousine, the American flags everywhere, motorcade, Secret Service everywhere. It stops in front of this little frame house. The door opens. The President of the United States gets out. He walks up and knocks on the door of that house. And Paul Haley's dad, Donald Haley, answers the door. And he answers the door in a pair of faded blue jeans and a dirty t-shirt because he'd been working on the family car. And to his amazement, there stands the President of the United States. The President said, Sir, I wonder, is Paul Haley home? Would you tell him the President would like to visit with him? About that time, little Paul Haley stepped out from behind his dad, and he looked up into the eyes of the man he admired the most. President Eisenhower got down on his knees, shook hands with the young man, and he led this little boy out to the... Presidential limo and showed him all the gadgets and everything. And they visited for quite a while. And then President Eisenhower, he hugged that little boy, shook his hand, gave him a presidential souvenir. And then his entourage loaded up and they left. Needless to say, folks, it was quite a wonderful and exciting day for everybody that was there. Everybody except Paul's daddy, Donald Haley. Because later on, Donald Haley said this, How can I ever forget the shame of standing there in those faded blue jeans and filthy t-shirt to meet the President of the United States? Folks, you know, just like Donald Haley regretted meeting the President in faded blue jeans and a dirty shirt, I believe every believer will regret meeting the Lord Jesus Christ if they have a dirty, rebellious life to offer to Him. Listen, if you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior, it's real simple. Fear God and keep His commandments. Do what He asks you to do. Go where He wants you to go and be what He's called you to be. You're going to face the judgment seat one day and all your works are going to be revealed. Now friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to accept Him now. You need to receive Him as your Savior because if you reject Him as Savior, you will face Him as judge. But the choice is yours. You can come to Jesus who's already died and face the judgment of your sins or you can face the music and the judgment for your sins all by yourself when the day comes and you can be condemned. The decision's yours. I want to close by reading a poem written by Mark Littlejohn. It's in a book called Tales of the NeverEnding. And I want you to listen to these words. He says, When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, And He shows His plan for me. The plan of my life as it might have been had He had His way with me. How I blocked Him here and checked Him there and I would not yield my will. Shall I see grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief, though He loves me still. Oh, He'd have me rich and I stand there poor. Stripped of all but His grace. While my memory runs like a hunted thing down the paths that I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break. With tears I cannot shed. I'll cover my face with empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. No, Lord, of the years that are left to me, I yield them to Thy hand. Take me, make me, mold me, Lord, to the pattern Thou hast planned. Folks, the final advice of our study in the book of Ecclesiastes is conclusive. Again, it says fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil. I want you to know the day's coming and I personally believe it's coming sooner than later when it's all going to be said and done. So are you ready to face that day? Are you ready? Not if you're not a believer. Not if you had not given your life to Christ. Because you need Him as your Savior, as your Redeemer, friend. You do not want to face Him as your Judge. Now, if you have given your life to Christ, then I'm going to ask you this. Are you living a life that fears God and follows His commandments? Are you living a life that brings honor to Christ or dishonor to Christ? If it brings dishonor to Christ, it brings shame and reproach to you. Would you bow your heads, please? Father in the stillness of the moment before we offer an invitation time a time to respond to your word I pray that each heart each heart here today knows where they stand concerning Jesus Christ Father, if they've never surrendered their life to Him and established that relationship with You, I pray today would be the day to do so. I pray that we see the need for a Savior. And then Father, for those who have done that but they're not living a life that that honors You, they're not living a life of, of humility and holiness before You, they would begin today to fear You and to keep Your commandments. Forgive us Father, for when we know what is right, but we still refuse to follow the instructions. I praise You for You being long-suffering and patient with us, and I pray that You'd be patient once again. In Christ's name, amen. You stand, please.